0: Greetings from ReadMax HQ in Brooklyn, New York. This is Max Reed, the proprietor, publisher, chief content officer of the ReadMax newsletter empire. We're trying an experiment today. Um, it is raining wildly hard in Brooklyn, which sounds like a lame excuse, but uh, my downstairs neighbor's apartment is flooded and my son's after school has been canceled and my wife is apparently stuck in Yonkers, New York. So I have a bunch of notes for a newsletter today that I don't think I'm going to have the time or wherewithal to bring together into a fully realized column, but I thought maybe if I started the Voice Memos app, I could kind of riff my way through a semi-coherent combination podcast monologue transcript that functioned both as an audio treat for subscribers and you know like a semi coherent um you know written out column using uh Substack's uh auto transcription situation so you're going to have to bear with me a little bit um if this is like a total embarrassment that makes no sense and is basically unlistenable we can all just pretend it didn't happen next week um and uh i hope that what comes out of this is um you know worth the subscription um, and let me just say, if you are listening to this as a podcast, uh, please come subscribe at maxread.substack.com um, or even upgrade your free subscription to a paid subscription for the low price of $5 a month or $50 a year. I take no advertisements. I uh, have no um, other, you know, way of funding this newsletter. So uh, readers support is is extremely important to me. Um what I was going to write about this week was the Writers Guild of America contract. Um, I don't know how many subscribers know this, but I am a member of the Writers Guild of America um, in my capacity as a screenwriter, which is not something I have done a lot in the last couple of years, um, but it's an organization I still rely on for healthcare, care. Um, and I was more than happy to join um, the strike this year um, as a, as a still dues-paying member. Um, As of Tuesday, uh, I am no longer on strike. Um, Over the weekend, the negotiating committee reached an agreement with the uh, Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is the umbrella group that includes all of the big studios. Um, The contract is uh, fantastic. Um, I'm incredibly impressed by the work of the negotiating committee. Um, I am deeply thankful to the essential, absolutely essential support of the Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA, and the uh, Film Crew Guild, IATSE, um, whose willingness to show up to our pickets, uh, to refuse to cross picket lines uh, and shut down production, um, was like one of the big driving forces behind the, um, the sort of magnitude of victory that we have. Um, I suppose I should say first, uh, if you are a showrunner or head writer who is listening to this, um, please be aware I am available to start work immediately. And actually, I was um, I was telling everyone all summer that I really respected your decision to cross the picket line or not to cross the picket line or whatever you did. If you are a high powered television or film producer, please know I didn't mean anything that I said about you. I was actually kidding. I think you and your colleagues are fantastic and I would love to meet you because I actually think our visions are quite similar and maybe we'd have a lot to work on together. For everybody else, um, I suggest you check out there's a bullet point summary of the contract terms at wgacontract2023.org. Um, if this is something you're interested in, you could check it out. Um, as I said, I think it's a great contract. If you're not interested in the sort of um, finer points of Hollywood labor practices, you don't need to check it out. But I wanted to write about it um, for this newsletter um, because there is a section about AI that I think is. Really strong, and I think how it was implemented is interesting, and I think what it means uh, for how we talk and think about ai in 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 the culture let 's say uh, but also especially in the context of sort of work and labor is important and I also just wanted to sort of remark generally upon um, what this contract means in the context of the long um, protracted war against the tech industry, the, the war that we've been fighting and will continue to be fighting against the tech industry in its effort to suck all value out of our lives. Um, so let's talk about the AI uh, points a little bit. Um, I think what I want to do is just remind everybody what the state of AI discourse was sort of before the the strike happened. So um, we went on strike May 1st. Uh, We were still in the midst of of like a sort of ongoing peak in AI hype and AI discourse. Um, There was uh, right around the time uh, a friend sent me today, right around the time the strike happened on May 16th, the New Yorker published a a piece called Can We Stop Runaway Artificial Intelligence? Um, This was the era of the Kevin Roos Sydney chats. Um, As John Herman has written, a huge amount of the kind of pro-AI discourse that comes in uh, on Twitter, especially where most of it seems to happen, takes the form of people taunting, writers especially, but artists, designers, anybody who who they think, uh, whose jobs they think can be fully replaced by AI. Um, and I should say that I don't think this particular sort of mania was restricted to uh, gullible journalists or... Um, you know the most aggressive uh, ai boosters the the acceleration the ai accelerationists um you know i went to a number of wj meetings in the run-up to the strike and uh you know there'd be a, a a lineup for questions afterwards and invariably there would be at least one person often a few who would expound at length about their fears or anxieties about ai something they'd read that day um You know, generally speaking, sort of comment, not question type interactions. And uh, I mean, I have this theory that AI as a technology, for some reason, there's a particular kind of brain that it just seizes and uh, makes uh, irrational or insane that uh, happens both with people who end up posting too much on Less Wrong or the rationalist forums, but also happens to people who feel like their jobs are threatened by AI, um, who have a really hard time sort of seeing it as, as anything but this like genuine kind of existential threat to all human culture, or existential boost to all human culture. Um, And I have to admit, I was a little bit, some of the early language from the WGA on AI, uh, I was a little bit, I don't want to say nervous about, because I recognized that, um, you know, we had to stake out a negotiating position, and we had to uh, sort of Defend the work of writers, but it was sort of phraseology that um, that sounded a, a little bit too enamored with the the sort of um, the I don't know how to put it the power or the um, or the, the 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 threat that AI posed. Um, if you hold on one second, I'm gonna I'll, I'll pull up some of it maybe the thing to say about the original WGA statements on AI is that uh, they were a little awkwardly worded and I think sort of uh, subject to misunderstanding by people who aren't familiar with how the WGA contract works. Um, But uh, what has come out of all of it um, is a, I think, really strong and um, interesting uh, set of strategies for dealing with um, the threat of AI replacing writer labor. Um, so let me start. Uh, if you go to the WJ Contract Twenty Twenty um, website, there or, sorry Twenty Twenty Three website, there are four four bullet points under the AI provision. Um, and I'll read out, I'll read them out, and maybe talk about them a little bit in order. So the first bullet point, and I think this is kind of the most immediately important one, um, reads, and this is not the contract language; it's the it's the easy explanation. But um, reads: AI can't write or rewrite literary material, and AI-generated material will not be considered source material under the MBA, meaning that AI-generated material can't be used to undermine a writer's credit or separated rights. Um so the way the WGA contract works basically is that um as a, as a component of the contract studios uh who are subject to the contract agree not to produce any movies um th- Except not to produce any every script that, that that turns into a movie, let's say, is going to be written by a WGA member, um, which means that if they buy a script from somebody who's not in the WGA, that person is automatically inducted into the WGA. So the idea that AI was going to like wholesale write scripts was basically a non-starter based on the way the WGA and the studios have always worked together. Um, and you could, you know, this is maybe a tangent, but I think perhaps one reason the studios were so hard-nosed from the beginning of these negotiations is they wanted to break the union to the extent that maybe someday down the road uh, they could get away with using fully AI generated scripts. Um, in some capacity. And let's bracket for a second that fully AI generated is always going to mean human intervention. Um, You know, that there is that the process of making a movie is always going to require people um, on one level tweaking any script, um, making the script work for them in one way or the other. You know, it's not like a script written by a human doesn't involve an enormous amount of input from producers, directors, actors, um, other screenwriters. But, uh, let's just say the way this the contract has always been structured, it was unlikely that, you know, after the contract was set or or, or anytime soon, um, studios would be just churning out chat GPT-generated scripts to produce um, because there needs to be a human who's a member of the WGA attached to the script um, in order for it to, you know, fulfill the contract terms. Um, what I think the WGA, what we were all worried about in particular was... The possibility, or frankly, the likelihood that the WG—that sorry—that um, studios would produce stories or story treatments using software like ChatGPT or or whatever sort of um, uh, generative AI application they could find, and that they would hand those stories to writers and say, "Write a script off this story," and then pay us only the adaptation fee, which is generally lower than the original work fee. Um, so, uh what this clause in the contract does is it says that uh, anything in AI write doesn't count as literary material which is which is the sort of contract jargon for scripts, treatments um, you know dialogue, anything that that a writer produces for the studio um, and and sort of more importantly that AI generated material cannot be considered source material under the MBA um, so there this this just ensures that uh AI If a studio wants to, like, bring us AI stories, that's fine. If a studio wants to use AI on its end for one thing or another thing, that's totally fine. It just ensures that our cut of, um, you know, of of money made from movies that we write, the movies that we work on, is not reduced, um, like, by this. And I think this works really nicely with the second bullet, which uh, reads out loud. A writer can choose to use AI when performing writing services if the company consents and provided that the writer follows applicable company policies, but the company can't require the writer to use AI software, for example, ChatGPT, when performing writing services. So this takes the other side of it, which is to say that writers can use AI as much as they want, provided that the studio who is employing them is okay with it. Um uh, and, uh, however they see fit. Um, so, you know, I think preserving the right or the freedom of writers to do their jobs as they see fit is like one of the most important goals of a union. I mean, preserving the right of workers in any capacity to do the job that, uh, in the way that they know best how to do it is like what a union should be for. And so I was really reassured by this because I think it's better not to, put into contract language sort of, how would I put it, normative language around what AI is and what it can do, um, or to, or prescriptive language, for that matter, for writers about what AI can and can't be used for. Um, the, the really key bottom line thing that I think is important about um, how this contract treats AI is that it says, to the extent that AI is ever going to become a part of the process of writing movie scripts um, that studios make for for a lot of money, um, you know, the studios make a lot of money off of, um, whatever productivity is saved is going to redound to the writers, not to the studios that um, if you can write more faster because of AI, if you can write better scripts because of AI, and I want to, you know, without granting that any of those things are possible, let's just pretend for a second that maybe they will be someday, that those benefits are going to um, pass on to the writers, and that the studios can find their own benefit, but they're not going to take more money out of the pie, um, just because AI now has has made, has meant, potentially means that writers can spend less time working on scripts, um, you know the uh, like you don't want to spend too much time comparing um, desk work, like writing scripts, to like blue collar industrial work. But you know it's not that different from thinking about the way productivity saving tools in factories uh, can be treated by unions. Which is to say, you could say we're not going to use this productivity saving, like, it's it's very rare that you're going to find a union saying, no, we're not allowed to use this productivity saving tool at all, we still just need, we still want our workers making widgets on the assembly line by hand. Much more likely, what you're going to say is, any machine that you're adding to the assembly line um, needs to be staffed at all time by two members of the union. Um, uh, Which is to say that all the productivity benefits there, you produce more widgets, you know, per hour or whatever, but, um, the union members get to, uh, the, the benefits were down on the union members. Um, I'm, you know, you can tell that I'm, I'm, I'm extrapolating wildly. This is exactly the kind of thing that I, um, why I hate doing this sort of spoken word monologue because I can't go and like, make sure that what I'm talking about makes sense in a, in a, in a real way. So I'm just going to have to like bullshit my way through it and hope that it continues making sense. Um, So I want to return to this, to the the idea about uh, this sort of idea about how technology um, is treated in the contract um, eventually. But I wanted to just run through the other two bullet points here. Um, Third bullet point is pretty straightforward. It's just the company must disclose to the writer if any materials given to the writer have been generated by AI or incorporate AI generated material. This seems straightforward and like a good idea. Um, And then finally, and I think this one is interesting, and I actually haven't quite formulated an opinion about it, so I'm just going to think out loud for a minute here after I read it. Um, The WGA reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writer's material to train AI is prohibited by the bargaining agreement or other law. Um, So what does this mean? Uh, There was a a Wall Street Journal story that came out um, a few hours before the specifics of the contract were made public, um, the headline to which was something like, uh, studios retain the right to use. Uh, hold on, I have it here. Uh, uh, Hollywood, uh, Hollywood studios can train AI models on writers' work under tentative deal. So um, the the I got in a, a, a conversation, uh, uh, an argument, but with some friends after this came out um, because it sounds like a cop out kind of, um, you know, the way the Wall Street Journal is framing it is essentially that. Uh, studios um, are allowed to feed uh, scripts into their own AI models um, to to create their own script-making machines. And my friend's like totally correct point on this was that, you know, why on earth should we trust the studios to respect our, um, you know, to, to, to not turn around in five years or 10 years or whatever and just start churning out, um, you know, script material uh, based on the scripts that we've allowed them to go. But I think there's a bunch of reasons why. So first of all, this isn't the way the WGA frames it at all. Their framing is a little more like uh, we reserve the right to sue you over this later or to bring it to arbitration or to bring it up in a contract in the future. Like, okay, for now, maybe uh, you can keep training your your models on our scripts. But that doesn't mean this is a settled question. So I think they would even if the the Wall Street Journal article is sort of um, factual, I think they would dispute the framing. That being said, um, I think there's a sort of a bunch of interesting things going on here. So let me let, let me step back just in case I've gotten ahead of myself. Um, uh, a lot of people might have seen recently. There's a, a bunch of authors are suing. I think it's Facebook, Facebook, um, and it's it's llama model um, for uh, essentially scraping entire books from online databases that they found and including that in the data on which um, their uh, large language models are trained. Um, so. And again, I'm sorry if I'm using some of the technical terms not entirely correctly. Um, so, you know, this is something, this, is, this lawsuit uh, is has the potential to sort of, I mean, I, I don't know, who knows how it's going to be decided and who knows exactly what would happen to the large language models if it's decided in favor of the authors. Um, it's something about which I feel sort of ambivalent. You know, I feel ambivalent towards the copyright regime in general and copyright law as an institution, On the other hand, I feel deeply um, contemptuous of Facebook and of OpenAI and these big companies that are um, these billion dollar companies that are clearly trying to build, uh, you know, uh, further billion dollar pieces of software off the back of of the hard work of authors and writers, um, who weren't aware that their, uh, that their work was going to get used for in a capacity like this. On the other hand, as a legal question, you know, I, it's, I'm sort of agnostic. I'm not, like, not, who cares about my agnosticism? I'm not a copyright lawyer, but it does seem kind of unclear to me whether or not what, uh, a program like ChatGPT is doing counts as copyright, uh, counts as, counts as, uh, fair use or not. Um, so all that being said, this is just a long way around saying I think the right strategy here in general for the Writers Guild is to um, is for people with writers to keep their options open. And if it seems like um, the training uh, training on copyrighted material is going to be ruled as a violation of copyright, that that's something that um, screenwriters should be taking full advantage of. Um, furthermore, I think, and and this has been suggested to me by uh, things that people in the WGA have said, The Writers Guild may feel as though um, its interests are actually aligned with the studios on this question, that in cases where the studios, for example, hold the copyright of a script, um, that we would rather work with them as fellow copyright holders uh, against potential copyright violators like Facebook or OpenAI. And then finally, I think the other part of this is there's just no way that the studio's models are going to compete with the current set of models that are out there. And I just don't ever see how they would that, I, you know, a company like Viacom or whomever is just it doesn't have the juice to to uh, produce a great, you know, script script producing um, generative AI model Um that could ever compete with ChatGPT, and so you know whatever. If if what they really want is to take our scripts and feed them into their model, into their shitty model, you know it's like these are companies that tried to build social networks. These are companies that have so far tried to build streaming platforms. They are just not companies oriented towards work like this. And so uh, we should, as far as I'm concerned, whatever they can take the they can take the scripts just fine. So. Uh, so I don't know. I suppose that's a sort of tangent um, about the the copyright question and about in general about the um, the 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 models that that the studios are 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 putting together. Um, what I really wanted to talk about, I think, uh, at the end here, and we are sort of wrapping up. Let's see, it's been twenty minutes, so maybe this is like a twenty-five minute podcast. Um, is uh, first of all how the discourse around AI is has shifted or is shifting and the extent to which the contract could play a role in that. And two, the sort of general experience of undertaking this strike and watching this contract be written um, in the wake of the streaming revolution and before some potential AI revolution. So in the first place, um, and I'm let me credit Tommy Craggs, who was the person who was texting me, who texted me the the New Yorker article this morning, um, who points out that the there's a there's a column in the in the Times right now um, that ran this morning that's called something. The headline of which is "Want to save your job from AI? Hollywood screenwriters just showed you how." Um, so. The move from the kind of inevitability of the New Yorker headline, can we stop runaway AI from the it's so over tweeters um, to the kind of here's how you stop AI, you know, mass organized labor power, um, I think is really interesting. And I think part of why um, it works so well is because of how the contract treats uh, AI, which is to say not in the specific as a as a not you know not sort of deep inside as a thing that we need to um, address specifically but simply as one of many different kinds of potentially labor-saving power that workers themselves should have the right to determine how and where and why they're used Um, you know like i think this is a little bit of a spurious comparison but you know one, i I one way of thinking about AI in the context of screenplay writing is that it's a sort of slightly more advanced um version of final draft, which is to say it's a piece of software that could potentially final draft is sort of the um the the standard screen special screenwriting word processor. Um, which automated a bunch of pro- if you know if you used to write a script on a on a typewriter you hit the tab button a lot and now with Final Draft you don't ever have to hit the tab button because it automatically determines whether you're writing um a a header a character's name um, to start some dialogue or a scene description or uh or or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and it would be ridiculous for studios to try and claw back the hour or two that gets saved every script um, by using Final Draft and saying, "Well, we're going to pay you, you know, however much less because um, because Final Draft is making your job faster." Um, and so, you know, the the well, as much as I sort of respect and um, can sympathize with people whose brains have been completely broken by the advent of um, machines that can write as well as, as chat GPT can. Um, I also think it's really, I think the benefit of thinking about this in the context of labor negotiations is that it allows you to, to, uh, sort of sidestep the kind of grand philosophical questions that writers in particular are so prone to, um, to asking and then being unable to answer, um, in favor of thinking about it solely in terms of compensation of labor's share of profits of, um, of, of compensation for work, um, and of productivity. Um, and I think, you know, to, to sort of borrow the, the New York times column headline, I think that is a, uh, that is sort of the key question in terms of how, of, of, of the question of whether or not labor is going to, sorry, of whether or not AI is going to eliminate jobs is um, how are you thinking about it? And how are you, you know, as a worker working with your other, working with other people who are in the same line of work to organize yourselves and ensure um, that you're continuing to be compensated at the same rate, um, that the, the productivity benefits of new technology are redounding to you instead of to, um, to your bosses, I had this little phrase that I was going to insert somewhere in the newsletter in my notes said, why should the benefits of productivity redound to MBAs uh, instead of MFA's, which was the kind of thing that felt really clever when I put it in my notes. And I get the sense I probably would have cut it at some point um, before it actually went to the newsletter. But um, it's also like it's being an MFA is really probably no more sympathetic uh, on an affective level than being an MBA. Um, Anyway, I wanted to expand this out, too, to say, um, you know, this was a particularly cathartic experience reading this contract and having the strike, uh, being victorious in the strike. Um, For me, because I come at this particular label battle after a 15-year career as a journalist in the midst of a huge... uh, upheaval to distributional, economic, technological models for how news media works. Um, and I think, you know, for a long time, um, and let's let's even step out and just talk about the tech industry in general, that I think that for a long time, um, one, the story that the tech industry has liked to tell about itself and a story that many people in the press have helped tell about the tech industry is one in which... Um, Advances in software, um, in networking, have uh, rationalized, formerly irrational, uh, you know, businesses have rendered them more efficient. Um, You know, maybe the sort of the most um, an even more obvious version of this is like the way Uber came in and cannibalized taxi businesses in most cities um, by virtue of introducing new software. Um, and, uh, that's like, that's a pretty attractive sort of story that this, this, and, and the, and the the reason this story gets told is it kind of naturalizes the, the, the movement of these tech companies, that it suggests that the, 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 the consequences of what they're doing was inevitable. Um, that the kind of, you know, all people like to, you know, in the tech industry like to talk about complexity theory or whatever, that we keep moving up the complexity chain. Um, But another way of thinking about it is that um, value was neither created nor destroyed. That basically just, um, you know, every dollar that uh, used to go in the pocket of a taxi driver now goes in the pocket of a Travis Kalanick, or, you know, more of it goes in the pocket of a Travis Kalanick and less of it goes in the pocket of a new non-medallion taxi driver. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really all that the tech industry did was come in and... And just move a lot of you know money from one side of the ledger from one part of the. Now I'm really fucking up the metaphor. Um, but you know what I'm talking about that that, that there's a sense that, um, it's not that it necessarily changed um the the particular the 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 amount of money any that is getting spent in any one sense. It just shifted who is spending the money and where. You know the the sort of line increasingly is that really a company like Uber or a company like DoorDash were subsidies for, you know, young urban professionals uh, on like subsidies carved out of the um, lowered wages of Uber drivers and uh, DoorDash delivery gig workers. um, And to some extent out of the venture capitalists who were just burning cash to make these work. Um, You know, and if you used to spend $10 on a cab ride and $2 $2 of that would go to the city and $8 of it would go to your cabbie. Now you spend $10 on a cab ride and $4 would go to your cabbie and $4 of it go to Uber. And, you know, and, and, or sorry, now you spend $8 on a cab and $4 would go to Uber and $4 of it go to, um, the city. And then there's an extra $2 there somewhere that I'm just going to wave away because I can't think this metaphor through right now. Um, so, you know, the, the, um, the reason I'm talking about all this is that um, the experience looking back from 2023 as a journalist is to have seen um, an industry that used to be flush with cash and used to be um, treat its workers, you know, relatively well, um, basically entirely wrecked by this distributional shift. And obviously, news media is a different industry than Hollywood is a different industry than cab driving is a different industry than food delivery. There's all kinds of specific problems that it had and that it would have had. But to have watched passively as it got destroyed versus the experience now of being a member of a powerful union, being able to have some say in the direction of how the industry incorporates new technology is absolutely incredible. Um, I think I've made this point before, but uh, it's kind of amazing. Hollywood has, m- as much as maybe more than any other industry over the last 80 years, Hollywood has undergone huge um, shifts in how it works based on technological development, that the rise of television, the rise of the VCR and the home theater, and now the rise of the Internet and streaming have completely changed how uh, how it distributes its films and you know, what kinds of films it makes, um, you know, what kinds of work gets done. But every time one of those big technological shifts, and you can basically map this out every time one of those big technological shifts has occurred, um, labor action has secured for writers and for actors and generally also for film crews, um, protections that allow them to continue to do their jobs, um, you know, unmolested, um, that it's, that writers in Hollywood, actors in Hollywood remain, are, are, have not been de-skilled in the same way that many other professions have been. They have not been um, pushed to the side. They haven't been turned into, you know, um, gig workers, working day rates. And that was absolutely the intent of the studios at the beginning of this process was to push us all into, into frameworks like that um, instead of into much more stable, secure employment. And um, And I'm not saying that, you know, if there had been an industry-wide union of journalists, we would have been able to do this in the 2010s. But I certainly think that anybody in a position where they see a kind of um, technological change coming down the pike for their work, uh, that something that is going to make their jobs easier, something that's going to potentially make them more productive, um, uh, they need to think about how they as workers are going to respond, um, which is to say, um, organizing, um, is, is the kind of key to, to fighting back in this sense. Um, yeah, so let's leave it there. Um, I don't think this was probably as articulate or as edifying as it would have been if I'd actually been able to write it out and edit it a little bit, but hopefully it was, um, satisfying for people who are insistent on getting at least one unit of readmax content every um every week um, based on their subscription um so uh i appreciate you listening or perhaps reading this if you're reading the transcript and um uh we will have a regular recommendations news roundup recommendations newsletter on sunday i think and i uh will be back next week with hopefully a more straightforward written out um Uh, newsletter and hopefully there'll be no water in the garden apartment and uh, and that's that signing off max reed